Christmas is a holy time of year, and as we approach this 2,000-year-old holiday season, it's a special time where we come together as family. And what's fascinating is the story of the story of Christmas. And today we're going to learn about that from uh, an extraordinary um, book called Christmas in the Crosshairs by Dr. Jerry Bowler. A clear path forward requires looking back and learning. Good public policy requires human connection. It's a consideration of the facts, applying common sense and innovation. It's urban, it's rural, it's real life. We all have something to contribute. We all have a responsibility to get informed because there's a little piece of Canada in all of us, isn't there? Let's learn on this path together. This is Leaders on the Frontier. So with me here today is Dr. Jerry Bowler, who's the author of Christmas in the Crosshairs. And uh, he's also a senior fellow at Frontier and uh, a good friend. So welcome, Jerry. Good to be here. Jerry, it's uh, great that you're here. I'm, I'm really excited about this story. I loved your book. It was uh, very um, insightful and um, frankly, I was kind of surprised by the story of Christmas. So I'm going to start off with a really basic question. Is there a war on Christmas? The short answer is yes. A slightly longer answer is there's always been a war against Christmas. There's always been wars against Christmas. Not just one, but many of them. Many, and, and some of them simultaneous, but through the uh, centuries that Christmas has been celebrated, there have has been a, a parallel uh, series of, of arguments, disagreements, uh, bickerings, attempt to abolish uh, the holiday. The fact is that Christmas is simply too important not to have attracted uh, hostile interest. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I, I guess that's really the, the larger point of the book is that between the atheists and the devout followers of Christmas, you have um, materialists, we have like every group imaginable, they just had to get at Christmas, didn't they, uh, given its scale and size? It's, it's too important. And you have to remember that, that the first attacks on Christmas come from within Christianity, that there, there were uh, centuries of debating, uh, first of all, if uh, the nativity of Jesus should be celebrated, and then when, um, and then how. So uh, within Christianity, there, there's bubbled these questions for uh, 17, 1800 years. And then we, we get uh, opponents from, from outside the faith, uh, from other faiths, from materialist uh, notions, uh, political movements, all kinds of social movements, um, Christmas is, is, is too big a target to miss. Well, it, it's a very interesting story. So speaking of the story, I want to begin with the beginning, and that is uh, when Jesus was born. Uh, we had early Christianity, and you're a, hist a historian, obviously, but how did early Christians celebrate or mark the occasion of Christmas? Well, at first they didn't. Um, they were much too interested in the the imminence of Jesus's return to, to bother much about the birth. Mm -hmm. uh, the nativity stories appear in only two of the, of, of the four Gospels. Uh, it, it's hardly mentioned at all in, in the rest of the New Testament. Mm -hmm. uh, it's only when Christianity is attacked by Gnostics who claim that Jesus did not come to earth in human form, but only appeared to 
that the church has to begin emphasizing the reality of the nativity, the bodily presence of Jesus, Mm -hmm. the diapers, Mm -hmm. the the poor setting, uh, the cold. And so uh, starting um, probably uh, really taking off in the 200s, the church decides, no, we've got to start talking about uh, the reality of of a human birth uh, in Bethlehem uh, during the time of Caesar Augustus. Interesting. When when Christmas is uh, decided upon uh, to be celebrated, uh, there were others that felt sorry. Christians don't do birthdays, and we certainly don't uh, don't want to imitate uh, Herod, who had John the Baptist uh, assassinated on his birthday. Once they decide to celebrate the Nativity, uh, which occurs in the three hundreds, um, it's chiefly chiefly uh, a, a church function. Mm. Uh, it, it's a time for uh, the first of the Christmas sermons uh, to begin. But almost almost at the same time uh, starts appearing festive elements, mm. uh, the giving of gifts, for example. <laughs> and Christmas in the late 300s and for the rest of its existence, takes on the aspects of a midwinter festival um, with gifts, uh, feasting, greenery, and light. (laughs) So one of the things I found interesting in the book, among others, was the whole issue of December 25 and Mm. how that date was set. Can you tell us more about how that was established? Yes. uh, There's no indication in the New Testament uh, clearer uh, indication of of the time of year when Jesus was born. And for a long time, historians said it must have been an attempt to either co-opt the pagan midwinter festivals, uh, Mm -hmm. like the Roman Saturnalia and Bromelia and the New Year, um, or perhaps to hide uh, Christian celebrations uh, in an empire that was uh, persecuting them. Mm-hmm. Um, that was called the uh, the history of religions theory. But most historians, I would say the last 20 or 30 years, have shifted to what's called the calculation theory. And it's, it's really an interesting um, and, and rather complex a- approach to the problem. Mm-hmm. The, the birth in midwinter um, occurs nine months after um, what would have been the time, roughly the time of the crucifixion of Jesus um, and the beginning of spring. In the ancient world, it was held that great men like um, Alexander the Great, Julius Caesar, Jesus of Nazareth, are born and die on the same date. Now, if that's the case, then we can say that, that Jesus would have been born at the time of his crucifixion, um, which is, is a debatable period, but it, it certainly occurs um, in the spring. Um, so let's say March 25th, um, which would have been the start of spring. Christians then said, well, what, what occurs on, on March 25th is the conception of Jesus, the, um, the conception uh, by the power of the Holy Spirit, accepted uh, by the Virgin Mary. So nine months after March 25th comes December 25th. Mm -hmm. 
This fits in with the cosmic notions of the time of year in which God created the world. So the birth of Jesus is likened to the birth of the planet Earth and life on planet Earth. Uh, obviously, uh, God began uh, the world not in winter, uh, but in spring, mm -hmm. when, when everything is, is green and new. So those kinds of, of metaphors led people to believe that Jesus was conceived on December, or sorry, on March 25th, and then born on December uh, 25th. Interesting. So, wow. So it has great significance, but we're not quite sure. Well, there's a passage in which John the Baptist um, says of himself, uh, at the time of the summer solstice, mm -hmm. Um, he must increase and I must decrease. So again, summer solstice, winter solstice. Then there's the calculation um, of the uh, service of John the Baptist's father mm -hmm. in the temple. Right. The, the first nativity miracle in the New Testament is, is not the, the conception of Jesus. It's the conception of John the Baptist to an elderly couple. Mm -hmm. And um, some very ingenious uh, biblical scholars, much more ingenious than I, have calculated that the term of Zechariah to serve in the temple, mm -hmm. when the angel appears to him and, and tells him that his very aged wife is going to conceive, um, occurred uh, in September. And if that's the case, then you add uh, nine months for right. John the Baptist, and then <laughs> Mary meets John's mother in what's known as a visitation mm -hmm. in the summer, nine months, yeah, December 25th, hooray! Isn't that interesting? Wow, that's fascinating uh, background, Jerry. <laughs> it it Jerry. is uh, a curious thing. The problem is that the churches in the West used a different date for Easter mm -hmm. uh, than the churches in the East. Right. So we've got churches in Alexandria, uh, Antioch, uh, Jerusalem, celebrating the Nativity, on January 6th, using mm -hmm. exactly the same numerical uh, calculations, mm -hmm. but just a different date for Easter. So that, that's the big tussle at the end of the 300s, is getting the Eastern Church in line with the Western Church. Well, okay. And eventually, they all come around, except Armenia, which to this day <laughs> uh, celebrates uh, Christmas on January 6th. Fascinating. So moving ahead to the year 404, as I recall, with um, Saint Aug our friend St. Augustine, uh, what did St. Augustine have to say about Christmas, Jerry? Well, he thought it was a good thing. <laughs> he, he thought that the emphasis on um, the physical um, part of uh, Jesus's birth coincided with all kinds of, of virtues that uh, the church was trying to to emphasize mm -hmm. the, um, the the poverty the, um, the 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 love of god in, in coming in the form not of a king uh, an emperor but as a tiny child uh, a helpless child a child of a family that was soon on the run mm -hmm. um, the whole notion of social inversion uh, of the world turned upside down starts to be emphasized uh, by the church. So uh, that that was obviously a, a, a uh, Saint Augustine was obviously a very significant thinker, theologian within church history. Um, and speaking of early Christians, have if Christians always been concerned that there were all kinds of other pagan influences that would 
uh, take away from the meaning of Christmas? Absolutely. That's one of the first um, sort of complaints about Christmas occurs right, right in the year 400 by, by a bishop named Asterius, mm-hmm. who's complaining that the pagan midwinter festivals not creep into Christianity. Mm-hmm. Uh, things like uh, putting up greenery or, or dancing in the streets, uh, making noises, uh, celebrating. Uh, Christians, uh, Christians' celebration should be should be sober. Uh, if they were going to give money, they should be giving it uh, to widows and orphans in, instead of spending it on uh, on uh, on food and drink or or going to a play. The problem is that uh, that kind of of meshing uh, is is inescapable. Um, it it creeps into Christianity and is sanctified. Um, our celebration uh, becomes less carnal, much much more joyous, uh, so that when we feast, we, we do it in, in, in Thanksgiving. When we sing, we sing wonderful songs mm-hmm. uh, about the nativity. When we visit our neighbors, we spread that kind of, of joy at the birth of Jesus. So Christmas has become a world phenomenon in a way that let's say Easter or Pentecost almost well uh, more than equally important uh, to the nativity uh, is not Mm -hmm. because uh, the celebration of the nativity has taken on those aspects of of festival and um, delight that every culture that exists in a a temperate climate does at midwinter. It's the coldest time of the year so you want heat and light. It's the barest time of the year, so you want to surround yourself with greenery. Uh, it is, an, at least in, in the ancient medieval world, it's an agricultural dead spot. Mm-hmm. Um, there's not much work to be done, but all the crops are in, the beer has been brewed, uh, the wine is in the casks, um, sausages are hanging from the rafters. <laughs> Let's eat. Okay. So uh, the consumption... Um, Festivity has been there almost from the beginning. Okay, so Christmas is certainly a joyous time of year. What would you say, and I know that you are a a person of Christian faith, what would you say then is at the heart of Christmas, the meaning of Christmas, if you will? I know that you reference things like um, social inversion as an example, Mm -hmm. but what's at the heart and meaning of Christmas? Well, Christmas is celebrated around the world on two levels. Um, one is the the Christian, mm-hmm. um, but that story is so full of magic that the magic leaks into the, the secular, the the, the uh, materialist uh, aspect of things, and and that to me is is the wonderment of it. You've got an absolutely fabulous story. Um, you've got uh, angels uh, appearing to the strangest people, an, an elderly couple, uh, and he says she's going to give birth, and and he talks back to the angel, and the angel gets mad mm-hmm. and says, "You know what? You, you you know who you're talking to? <laughs> I stand next to God. You shut up." <laughs> and and he has to be mute for months, uh, talking to uh, foreign astrologers. In, in different lands, telling them that something is going to be happening in Bethlehem. You, you better get on your camel and start moving. 
Angels appeared to a bunch of lowlifes in the hills. Shepherds, who are the lowest form of employed life, they they um, they're they're so dirty and um, ill thought of that their testimony doesn't count in court. Yeah. And that's who God sends the first message to. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, they don't send them off, off to Herod's palace. There's an animal shelter <laughs> in a nearby town. And, you know, the, the sky full of more angels than ever, magical stars, more prophetic dreams running away. It's just uh, a fabulous story. And at the heart of it is this baby. Incredible thought that the creator of the universe, the, the master and sustainer of the cosmos who creates galaxies with a twitch of his eyebrow is coming to earth in the shape of the most helpless infant. Can't control his bowels, can't control his limbs. Yeah, wow. At the mercy of a, a baffled young couple. Um, from that point, everything leaks out and, and all the the stories of Christmas thereafter are stories of miracles. Stories, for example, of St. Nicholas, which merge into stories of Santa or mm -hmm. of, of all the various saints that bring gifts of flying reindeer. None of that's possible uh, unless we rewind to that moment in Bethlehem in, in which God appears in the form of a baby. Indeed. Yeah. So if we kind of move towards more the the modern sensibility of what Christmas is about, was there a time in history, Jerry, when we could look back and say, yeah, those are when those things that we recognize today started happening? Like you mm -hmm. referenced like gift giving and, yeah. you know, the gathering of family and, and a joyous atmosphere. When did that really start taking hold then? They all drop in at different points in history. Um, the gift giving uh, right away. Uh, it's uh, the, the Magi mm -hmm. bring gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Um, we see it uh, in, in the late 300s with um, well, uh, theologians who are now saints giving each other gifts. Um, for a long time, though, there was no magical gift bringer. Mm. Uh, and, and certainly there was no magical gift bringer for children. That appears uh, around the year 1200. At, with St. Nicholas. So um, gifts for children start appearing then. The Christmas tree pops in um, in the 1500s, starts getting decorated um, in the 1600s. The notion of homecoming, of, of familiness, doesn't really appear uh, until the 19th century with the uh, emergence of railways. Oh. Because uh, up to that time, in the winter, if you're still separated from your family, you know, your, your daughter's a servant, your kid's working on a farm somewhere, impossible <laughs> for them to come home. So the homecoming nature really only starts um, in the 19th century. That's when um, the consumption changes from an emphasis on food and drink to manufactured products, because that coincides um, with the Industrial Revolution, mm -hmm. and as well as new ideas about um, uh, the role of children in the family. They, be they become less important economically, and, and uh, childhood now develops into a special privileged time. 
So these things uh, pop in and out. Uh, the stockings appear quite early, um, but among the first things to appear in stockings are things that don't appear anymore, like mm -hmm. switches or coal. We, we, we don't uh, threaten our kids with beatings uh, anymore. Um, reindeer <laughs> appear in 1821. Uh, anyway, yeah, so there's a whole list of things that... Uh, a Crete to become the modern Christmas. So what about um, the significance of Saint Santa Claus or, or Saint Nicholas? When, when did that character yeah. uh, arrive on the scene? Well, Saint Nicholas uh, has his day on December 6th. And in the Middle Ages, he was the most important saint next to the Virgin Mary. He, he's, he's been demoted down the calendar now. Um, but at the time, more people had him as his patron saint than, than anybody, any other male saint. Um, whole countries, um, whole industries had him. And he was also the patron saint of children. Uh, he had several of his miracles involved children. So at some point around the year 1200 in, in what we think is, is France, mm -hmm. um, what we believe our nuns start giving little gifts to children in their care on St. Nicholas Day. Mm -hmm. And from, from around 1200 on, children now have a magical gift bringer. And um, he will eventually um, dominate the magical gift bringer scene for hundreds of years until the Protestant Reformation, in which uh, saints are given the boot and he has to be replaced. Hmm. Um, parents love the notion of uh, a magical gift bringer, but if it can't be a saint, who can it be? Ah, the baby Jesus, okay. the Christ child, das mm -hmm. Christ Kindle, the petit Jesus. So um, we now have competing um, magical gift bringers depending on uh, the area in Europe and the denomination. Um, Interesting. So just can you explain, uh, I know you do in your book a little bit, but St. Nicholas, why was he such a prominent saint? And then why was he demoted? So to St. Nicholas uh, was a bishop in the Eastern Roman Empire in what's now Turkey uh, in the 300s. Mm -hmm. um, he was uh, had a brief notoriety for appearing at the Council of Nicaea and smacking around a heretic. Um, he seems to have been one of the first people to have been a, declared a saint for his holy life rather than his martyrdom. Hmm. And so the corpus of legends um, around him grows. Uh, he has magical powers. He can fly. So he's famous for rescuing sailors caught in storms at mm -hmm. sea. He becomes the patron saint of sailors. Um, he saves people from unjust execution. He rescues um, daughters from uh, prostitution by secretly throwing bags of gold in to provide their dowries. He resuscitates three boys who have been murdered and chopped up and pickled in a barrel um, about to be cannibalized. So um, a, a big a big saint uh, in the Middle Ages and um, something that even Martin Luther uh, appreciated. Uh, he um, kept the St. Nicholas tradition for his children, though eventually he disappears from most Protestant countries. Hmm. What's important, though, is that he is brought to North America. Um, 
he comes with the Dutch settlers who settle um, what's now New York, mm-hmm. uh, particularly up the uh, the Hudson River Valley. And there he is known as Sinterklaas, mm-hmm. Dutch for St. Nicholas. Right. And uh, English Americans uh, adopt Sinterklaas, Sandy Claw, Santa Claus, Santa Claus, mm. uh, in the early <laughs> 1800s as the magical gift bringer. Yeah, no, it's just fascinating the the um, the evolution of these things in uh, culture and, and time. And and speaking of an aside, you can see I'm wearing a so-called candy cane tie. Indeed, you are. So, Jerry, you know uh, everything about Christmas. So, what is there meaning to the candy cane? <laughs> the or... candy cane. Um, If you go on some Christian websites today, you will read that the candy cane is really an inverted J for Jesus, and that the stripes are his blood, and and so Ah, none of that is is true. Um, That's what we call retrojection. Okay. You you go back and you grab something and and you you give it the meaning that you want. Uh, Candy canes seem to have appeared in the 1600s in Germany when a choir master um, in charge of a bunch of very unruly boys got tired of hitting them and started giving them candy canes to, um, to munch on to, to, to keep them uh, civilized behavior. Uh, the red and white striping is a candy making technique that doesn't come in until the 19th century um, and, and becomes even more developed uh, in, oh. in the 20th century. Who so knew? Who originally knew? Originally, just just plain candy. That's interesting. So, speaking of um, other groups, what did the Puritans have to say um, about Christmas? They didn't like it. Uh, these most religious of all Protestants uh, decided in the 1550s that any any festival, any celebration at all, that didn't get official sanction in the Bible Mm -hmm. was idolatrous, meaning it was made by man, not God. So they threw out Easter and uh, Pentecost and and Christmas. Wow. And in countries where the Puritans reigned supreme, such as Scotland, uh, parts of uh, Switzerland, England, uh, for a period of, of 20 years, and New England, mm-hmm. uh, there was no Christmas celebration at all. In fact, it was against the law to celebrate Christmas or, or to sing uh, Christmas carols wow. or to have a church service on a, a Christmas that wasn't a Sunday. That's amazing. Um, gosh, no candy canes for the Puritans. Um, no, indeed. So one of the fascinating parts of the book uh, that was quite interesting was... Um, the whole debasement of Christmas. Like there was a period where it became kind of drunken brawls and things like this. It's exactly. almost hard to imagine. Yeah. So what, what happened there, uh, Jerry? Um, we just mentioned that the Puritans had um, banned Christmas in England uh, mm-hmm. during the 1640s and the 1650s. When Christmas was reinstated with, with the return of the monarchy, it had gone down market. Uh, it, it became a Sorry, celebration. Sorry, you, you said down market? Down market. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Uh, aristocrats weren't celebrating it much anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it used to be a, a time of charity, of dispensing generosity to your tenants, 
um, they dropped all that. Uh, no more free beer, no more free bread uh, for the tenants at Christmas. And it was a, a rural thing. Um, it was a time for a, a drunken blowout, hmm. singing, carousing. And by the 1700s, it had, it had got even worse. Uh, we, we can see this uh, in London uh, by looking at the newspaper. Uh, it's hardly mentioned at all Christmas, except on the um, criminal courts page where, where people are, are uh, hauled before the judge for uh, drunken brawling. In cities in um, the United States, there are uh, drunken gangs who appropriate the holiday. Um, they swagger down the streets and they, they beat up on immigrants or wow. African-Americans, uh, make noises outside of churches, um, have bang, 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 ugly music. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was the desire of some intellectuals and artists in New York in the early 1800s to rescue Christmas, to bring Christmas indoors, to take the booze out of it, and to focus it on Christmas that saves Christmas in North America. Out of that movement, we get the invention of Santa Claus. We get the poem, Twas the Night Before Christmas. In England, we get Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol, mm -hmm. emphasizing the charitable aspect, the family aspect of it. We've got carol collectors going into the boonies and rescuing songs wow. that were no longer sung in the cities. We've got church reformers saying, let's decorate our churches, let's be festive again. <laughs> and all of this takes time, but in the 1800s is a time of rescuing Christmas. The Puritans are still against it. Um, people of Puritan mind are still against it. And there's an, an Anglican church in England that had to hand out uh, brass knuckles uh, to its uh, con uh, congregation to keep uh, the Christmas decorations from being busted up by hostile ultra Protestant. No mobs. kidding! Wow. Yeah, and we, we still get that. Yeah, we we still have uh, pockets of um, very vigorous Calvinist opposition. To Gosh. Christmas. So there's always these interesting um, cultural swirls around Christmas and trends, but also debates within uh, Christian faith about how Christmas should be marked. And so you refer yeah. to a lot of that movement to bring Christmas back in a positive way as the, did you call them the revivers? Is that right? Yeah. Uh, in the 19th century, there are people involved in the revival of Christmas. Wow. Um, the translators of ancient songs that become the Christmas carols that we sing today. Okay. Uh, People like uh, John Neal in England or um, Christina Whitworth. Anyway, she translates all the wonderful German stuff. Um, new songs are, are being sung. Um, the, uh, the charitable aspect is reinfused mm -hmm. into Christmas. Mm -hmm. All kinds of uh, groups spring up to provide um, Christmas meals, uh, Christmas heat mm -hmm. uh, to families. Uh, these are the ones that uh, save Christmas, reinfuse it, um, add meanings to it, and make Christmas this powerful global force that, of course, engenders opposition. Mm -hmm. um, if you have a different 
view in mind for humans, uh, you're going to want to do away with Christmas. Mm-hmm. And so uh, communists, fascists, um, social democrats are all um, targeting Christmas. Atheists yes. target Christmas. Vegetarians. Okay. Christmas. <laughs> it's a turkey holocaust. Okay. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, the, the 20th century is, is a time of, of epic battles right. uh, for the survival. Of yeah, no, I, I found those chapters to be fascinating, basically how you have these tyrants come on the scene and basically want to push Christmas aside uh, for their own well, reasons, right? Like well, they you, have to. Yeah. You, you can't have a big po- segment of the population proclaiming God came to earth to save us, and we should be happy about that Yeah. Uh, if you don't believe um in God, right, and uh, you want uh, peasants uh, not to be celebrating, but to working on fulfilling the tractor quota for the next uh, five-year plan. Exactly. Um, yeah. Why? Communist... Why would you want to tell the Christmas story? Well, exactly. So, uh, Chinese communists go at it hard. Um, Russian communists go at it hard. Mm-hmm. Fascists take a different approach. They understand that Christmas is embedded deeply into, for example, German culture. Mm -hmm. So what Hitler and his boys try to do is to pervert Christmas, Mm -hmm. to turn it away from December 25th to the winter solstice, the pagan celebration on December 21st. And Adolf Hitler, they still sing Silent Night, but you don't mention Jesus, you mention Adolf Hitler. Isn't that bizarre? Uh, Yeah, you, you... uh, don't mention um, uh, Santa Claus or St. Nicholas. You have older figures from German uh, pagan mythology. Right, right. Um, it's, uh, they don't use Weihnachten, mm-hmm. uh, for example. Fröhliche Weihnachten, Happy Christmas. It's it's Fröhliche Julefest, using um, Yule, the, the, the ancient word uh, for Christmas. No, it's, it's really creepy. In the book, you have a, a, a picture of a Christmas card of all things, uh, and of course the Nazis were, were hated uh, Christianity. But he he did put out a Christmas card, and of course the emphasis is on him. Yes. So yeah, no, it's it's pretty creepy. Um, so today we have a lot of groups that all want to uh, kind of uh, get their word in edgewise around Christmas, um, and you have some really uh, interesting slides there. Uh, even the uh, the PETA people, um, the people that are for pets rights um, right. have a kind of an angle on Christmas. It seems like everybody's kind of all over Christmas, uh, well, even today. Christmas is sacred and popular. So if you're outside of, of Christianity and you want a message, mm-hmm. the thing to do is to horn in on Christmas, right? Um, to attack it or to jujitsu, uh, use, it, use its momentum uh, to help you. So yeah, the PETA also always appears at Christmas because they're vegetarians and um, they'll publish wonderful descriptions of, of the beauty uh, that is the face of a turkey. No, oh, it's uh, amazing. Now, yeah. um, if you think about uh, fast forward to today, um, it is really quite interesting. I, I did uh, take some time this week to read an interesting report that came out from the Canadian Human Rights Commission of all things. And uh, yes, Jerry, I'm sorry to put this on the table. Um, I I read the report and basically it was hammering away at both Christmas and Easter 
And, yeah. you know, it's, it's stunning because during this tragic time where there's been these um, Hamas terrorist attacks uh, and anti-Semitism in Canada and around the world, the Human Rights Commission, I think, has been utterly silent. But they did weigh in on their report on this time, on when it came to Christmas and Easter. Were you surprised by that? They were basically no. calling it... Um, no, that, can... they've been at it for for decades. It, I, I thought that it, it had peaked. There, there was a peak of this kind of nonsense um, in the early 21st century. Um, judges began to ban Christmas trees from courthouses. Mm -hmm. uh, professors started complaining about Christmas trees in museums, that they were anti-immigrant, that they told people uh, you didn't belong. Right, right. Um, what this is part of is, is not an attack on Christmas so much as it's an attack on public religion. Christianity in particular. They want a naked public square. Mm -hmm. they, they want to strip faith from anything um, that has to do with, with the public. They, they don't want Christmas trees in airports. They don't want buses with signs that say Merry Christmas, Happy New Year. Um, they want an utterly secular marketplace. So you can have it in your home you can have it in church. That's where it belongs. But um, God, God, if there were a God, God forbid that uh, it should appear on, on the side of a bus or in a public park. Wow. But isn't the paradox, it sounds like um, some in the public square or in broader society, and I know that we have the freedom to believe what we want to believe, have perhaps adopted, dare I say, a secular religion. Well, it's it's very paradoxical because what what we have is that for the sake of inclusion and diversity, we're suppressing the majority culture. Uh, it, it, that has never seemed to make sense to me, but it makes perfect sense to the diversocrats, mm -hmm. the the umbrage industry, this army of um, people who inhabit our, our school districts, universities, governments unions, corporations, um, wow. they're everywhere uh, telling us that there must be no mention of a god, that your decorations in a public office must be entirely um, anodyne. Uh, you, it, it goes so far at some universities to ban red and green as winter festival decorations. Gosh. So no more Christmas pageants. We now have winter festival. Um, uh, yeah. Jerry, uh, all I can the, say the, is... The book is full of examples. They, yeah. they need to read Charles Dickens' brilliant book in, from 1833 called The Christmas Carol, and maybe they yeah. could relax a bit and enjoy the season. Um, so as we look to the, uh, the real meaning of Christmas... Uh, do you have any tips uh, to people, our viewers, as we uh, anticipate Christmas and how they can best uh, drink in this special time of year? I got a million tips. Okay. <laughs> um, the first is you're allowed to enjoy yourself. Christmas is not Lent. Christmas is a feast. So enjoy yourself. It's often a time of stress. There's a million ways to reduce that stress. Uh, I always start planning for Christmas months ahead of time. 
make agreements with your family, where we're going to celebrate, how we're going to celebrate, when we're going to open the presents, how long kids have to wait in bed before they get up and open <laughs> their stockings, how they are not allowed to open Christmas presents under the tree until they've had a decent breakfast in them, and, and so on. Infuse charity into your season. <laughs> this, is, this is the number one time for public attention to Christianity. Let's make people know for sure that Christians are the loving and giving people, that we are grateful for the gifts we've been given. We're going to share them. Sing. Bring back carol, carolers going from house to house. Make sure that those outside the family get a taste of your Christmas. Christmas in the West is, is a time when we bunker up, um, when, when we exclude. Um, well, that's, that's one of the signs that you're, you're in the in-group is, is if you're in, in the Christmas inner circle. Expand that circle. Get, get people who might be single or widowed, refugees, visitors. Make sure they have a taste of the good times. Uh, remember, December 25th is the first day of Christmas, not the last day. Indeed. Christmas is a season. <laughs> There's Advent for preparation. There's the 12 days of Christmas for celebration, right up into Epiphany. And I could go on and on about the need to, to revive Epiphany, too, but I will save that for another podcast. Well, well said. Dr. Jerry Bowler, thank you so much for joining us today and bringing, dare I say, the spirit of Christmas to our discussion today. Well, I hope so. Merry Christmas to everyone. Merry Christmas to you, and thank you again. Thank you for watching Leaders on the Frontier. We're a nonpartisan think tank. We explore ideas, policy, and practical solutions that can make a difference in the lives of Canadians. We do not accept any government funding. We work for you. Thank you for supporting Frontier. Visit fcpp.org to give. While you're there, be sure to check out our latest articles and research. Without open discussion and debate, you're not thinking, nor are you free. Comment below. We'd love for you to join the conversation.